Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Stephen Um, originally given at TGC's 2018 West Coast Conference. It's, it's been a great joy to be able to look through uh, Second Timothy, as others have pointed out already, how important it is for us to be able to land on the firm foundation of God's Word, to be careful as as teachers or preachers or as lay leaders or Christians, to be careful that we do not abandon or leave biblical revelation for human speculation. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't understand our cultural context. This does not mean that we should not contextualize well whatever our social location might be. But we can't make human speculation or our cultural moment and time to be the final authority for that which is true and from God. Someone has said that we don't live out our lives based upon the facts but we live out our lives based upon the interpretation of the facts, which means that you and I can have the same set of data, but it doesn't mean that we will come to the same interpretation of that same data. We will assess, we will elaborate, we will analyze it through our particular interpretive lens, which has been shaped by our social location. So when you think about Christianity, I remember many years ago reading an essay, and this was very helpful for me as I was learning how to to contextualize well. Because we know that we all contextualize. It's not like contextualizing is is, is always bad or always good. It depends on how you contextualize as you recognize the scriptures being the ultimate foundational authority for how you assess everything in life and in ministry. And I was reading this essay and it helped me to think of it this way, that Christianity, depending on your cultural or social location, can either on the one hand be radically progressive or subversive, or on the other hand, horribly traditional and reactionary, depending on where you are. So if you are in a certain context, and it doesn't have to be outside of our country, it could even be in certain pockets, certain subcultures within our, within our country, but if you are in a setting where they say the state is the final arbitrator for determining what is right or wrong, then Christianity is absolutely going to seem radically progressive. Because the Bible reminds us, Christianity reminds us, the gospel reminds us that the final arbiter is not ultimately the state or some sort of totalizing authoritative structure. But on the other hand, when we are living in a modern, overly individualistic culture such as ours, 
which tells us that the individual is the finer, final arbiter or authority for determining moral values, then in that setting, Christianity, the Bible, the gospel, will seem extremely, extremely, horribly conservative and traditional. And so we need wisdom to know which way to look depending on our context. Our context does not determine as our foundational uh, uh, arbiter in determining what is right or wrong. The scriptures remind us what that is. But as we move out from that, we can't be completely uh, uh, obtuse or blind to the situation that we are in. And what Apostle Paul is helping us to see here in our given passage this morning is to realize that we have been called to be workmen, that we have been called to be servants, that we have been called to be vessels, that we have been called to be instruments in the hands of a Lord, a master who has called us to be unashamed and approved. And so what does an, what does a, an uh, approved and unashamed workman, how does he live or how does she live her life? There are three things I'd like for us to consider. Number one, an unashamed workman receives the word. Number two, rejects worldly thinking. Thirdly, restores the wanderer. Number one, receives the word. The word is the word of truth. Look here with me in verses 14 through 15. Remind them of these things and change them bef- and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So when it says here in verse 14, remind them of these things. Apostle Paul in these pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and also in Titus, when he refers to these things, oftentimes, in most cases around seven or eight times, he's referring to the material or the content that he has just stated. So these things will refer back to what was stated uh, prior to these verses, previous, within the literary context. And so what do we find here? I believe that when Paul says, remind them of these things, it's referring to what is given in verses 18 through, I'm sorry, verses uh, 8 through 13. Look with me in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So what, what Paul is saying is, an approved, unashamed workman receives the word of truth, receives these things, remind them of these things, cause them to remember, charge them with these things. What are these things? It's the gospel. And what is that gospel? Then you go earlier in chapter 1, And this is what it says in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about 
our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So he's saying these things, that's the gospel. The gospel has come forward in power by grace, in Christ, through faith. And what is the content of that gospel? He tells us in verse 10, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So when you go through the New Testament and you do a word study on the word gospel or good news, you're going to find that there are three non-negotiable, uh, essential elements of the gospel, which again has been highlighted, I'm sure, by others who've presented here at this conference, and you're very familiar with these. Number one, it's his incarnation. It says here in verse 10, and which now has, has been manifested, revealed, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, incarnation. Number two, it's about his atonement, who abolished death. Number three, it's about his resurrection and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it's about his coming, his dying, and his rising. Yes, it is about his life, death, and resurrection. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. Timothy, my beloved son and child and disciple, this is what you need to know. You need to remind others of these things. Cause them to remember and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, but for them to be remember and to receive the word of truth. The gospel. And receiving this gospel assures us that we are approved and should not be ashamed. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And here, of course, uh, before we see this word here, ashamed, it has already come up multiple times in chapter 1. It says in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. It says here in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. And listen to this, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. So the reason why Paul is saying that he is not ashamed and you ought not to be ashamed, why you are approved and, and, and you are not rejected is because, here's the reason, the reason, he says, for, because I know whom I have believed. The object of our affections, the object of our worship, the object of our faith, that person, the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who has approved us. He is the one who has not rejected us, and therefore we ought not to be, un, uh, not to be ashamed. Many years ago, when I was at university, I had the privilege of start studying with um, Peter Berger. And at that moment, I didn't know that Peter Berger was Peter Berger. <laughs> Just somehow, providentially, I, I ended up uh, being in his class and took multiple classes with him and also with his wife, who is, who, uh, is a world-renowned world uh, sociologist. 
And so here's this eccentric Austrian man who's violating all the university rules by smoking in the classroom. And there was something extremely appealing about this man because he was not a typical American scholar or professor. He was so engaging. He was, he was so engaging. And um, that, that's not what I meant, but... Uh, but you know, we're, we as Americans, we're all a bunch of Anglophiles and we appreciate things from Europe more than we do from our own, own home culture. But, um, and, and this is what he said. As you know, that he is really before post-modernity became post-modernity. He was talking about modernity and, and, um, and he was trying to help us to understand the difference between a traditional culture and a modern culture. And, um, and this is what he said. He said, in traditional cultures, it's all about being collectivistic. It's about, it's about honor and not bringing shame to the family. You are, identi you are identified and having value for who you are because you belong to that particular family or tribe. That's what traditional cultures think. And so, of course, the opposite of honor will be shame. But modern cultures are individualistic. And so they focus more on dignity. And, and of course, the opposite of dignity will be guilt. And so, so honor is something that you receive and dignity is something that you obtain. So to the degree as Westerners, to the degree that we understand this, we will sense as though we have value, that we calibrate our value based upon the amount of achievement and accomplishments that we have because that's how modern people think. Modern cultures have conditioned us to say that you are valuable, you have dignity based upon the amount of achievement and accomplishments which you yourself have to go out there to gain and to obtain. And therefore, when you fail in that way, then you feel guilty. You blame yourself, or you blame uh, uh, some factors within the system. And, and so this is, this is the way we process the difference between traditional and modern cultures. And of course, he has uh, outlined this in his uh, very important book, The Homeless Mind. Now, why was that important for me when I was in college? Because I was not born in this country. I was born in another country. Um, and so in that sense, I'm bicultural. I am both Western and I am also Eastern. I am bilingual, I'm bicultural. And so for me, at that young age, I was struggling in, for my entire life how to come to terms with my identity formation. Am I Western? Am I more individualistic? Or am I Eastern? Am I more communal? And, and the reason why my existential struggle was so intense for me was because my existential struggle was bicultural. I felt as if I, were, I was not receiving, I was not obtaining enough dignity, and I felt as though I was failing my family and I wasn't able to receive enough honor. So I'm being shamed and having guilt all at the same time. <laughs> Some of you just struggle with just one. But my struggle was bicultural. And what I failed to realize at that particular time 
was I was listening to the wrong voice. I was listening to the wrong source. We are all, Paul Tripp says this, that we are revelation receivers. We are all listeners. There, it's not as though we're, we say, oh, I'm completely independent. No one is independent. We are all shaped and influenced by some voice, some source, some revelation. We are all revelation receivers. We're all listeners. And for me, in determining who I was, I was listening to the wrong voice. I was listening to the Western voice that said, yep, you're going to have to become who you are. You're going to have to actualize what you want to be for the future. And you need to go out there and work for it. And you need to achieve it. But on the other hand, I was also listening to the voice of my Eastern culture, my home culture, as opposed to my host culture, which was telling me, you need to honor your parents. You need to make sure that you don't abandon your home culture and get Americanized and get Westernized or from their perspective, get Babylonized. You cannot abandon your home culture. You are who you are. As much as you want to be someone and you want to assimilate to the dominant culture, you need to understand people are going to still look at you as someone who is different. So I always stressed as a kid, always stressed, always feeling shameful, always feeling uh, guilty. And by the way, that, that does help with your grades. You know, when you're feeling stressed and you feel like you're inadequate, then that kind of motivates you. Um, not healthy, but it works. <laughs> and I needed to hear the right foundational dominant voice of the gospel, which says, you are approved. You are honored. You have dignity and worth because the creator created you in his image. You are approved. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to go out there into the, 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 the courtroom of public approval and try to measure up and to calibrate your worth based upon their assessment of you. You don't need to do that. You are approved. Yes, we have been charged. Yes, there is a sentence because of our sin. But the verdict has come out. And because of God's grace, which is in the gospel through his coming, dying, and rising, we are approved and we don't need to be ashamed because the verdict has been reversed. The conviction has been reversed. The jury is no longer there. The court is adjourned. You are free to go. However, we are free, but we're not independent. So this is not a, a moment for us to be hedonistic and to pursue licentiousness and become antinomian as gospel-believing people. This is what God says in 2 Samuel uh, 7, somewhere. Um, right, in that great Davidic uh, covenantal promise, 
This is what he says. He, 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 David is reminded of what God has done for him. And this is what it says. It says that God redeemed his people. And, and, and listen to the prepositions. God redeemed his people for himself and from Egypt. Which tells us that we have been freed from Egypt. We have been freed from the bondage of slavery. We no longer need to, to go after our counterfeit hopes, which will enslave us. We have been free. We are free. We are free to go. The court is adjourned. The verdict has been reversed. The cosmic judge could pronounce judgment on us, but yet he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's amazing. However, it does not say that he redeemed us, his people from Egypt, but it says he redeemed his people for God and from Egypt, which means we have freedom, but not independence. We are not independent people. We're free, but we're not autonomous. We're free, but we are dependent people. And therefore, a person who has been shaped by this gospel is not ashamed, is approved, and will rightly handle the word of truth. Now, this word here, rightly handle, some translations say correctly handle, is an interesting word. It's where we get the, uh, the, uh, the English derivatives that, that uh, have uh, the word ortho. Right, like ortho walk in Galatians 2.14. Make sure that you walk in line with the truth of the gospel. That's kind of ortho aligning yourself, straightening your alignment with the gospel. That's what Paul is saying, ortho walking. It's like when we say orthodontics or orthotics or orthopedic, that which is crooked, we're trying to straighten out. And, and what Paul is saying here is somebody who rightly corrects and correctly handles the word of truth, which is the gospel, the, the, the gospel in the scriptures, he is saying we are, we are correcting the path, removing the obstacles, making things straight, rightly handling the word of truth. It's actually the Greek word that translates the Hebrew in Proverbs 3, 6, where it says, and he will make your paths straight. Not leaning on your own understanding but on the wisdom of God. So an unashamed, approved workman receives the word of truth, which is the gospel. And that gospel tells us that we are approved and we ought not to be ashamed. Therefore, we have been given the wonderful privilege and gift to correctly handle the word of truth as our final authority, not being shaped by our social location, although we need to be aware of it. Secondly, an approved, unashamed workman not only receives the word, which is the gospel, the word of truth, but also rejects worldly thinking. Verses 16 and following. It says here, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart uh, as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready, ready for every good work. So, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So we need to reject worldly thinking. We need to, we need to press back against. We need to speak into anything that swerves from the truth. Anything that's not foundationally true from God's word. Anything that deviates from the gospel. That has a reductionistic definition of the gospel. And wanting to only talk about certain atonement images that are convenient for your particular lens. That they want to abandon uh, penal substitutionary, vicarious atoning work of Jesus. And we don't want to talk about the blood, but we'll just say that he's a triumphant victor who defeats social oppression. Now, is that true? Absolutely. That is a biblical atonement theme. But the problem with that view is it is a truncated, it is a reductionistic view of the atonement images in Scripture. So they were babbling. They, they had a, a, a sickly craving for speculation and foolish, ignorant controversies and myths. They were drawn to something that seemed extraordinary, something that seemed sensational, something, something that, that, was, that was something that they might not have heard before. Now, one thing we know for sure if someone says, hey, you might never have heard this before, most likely what will follow that statement is not orthodoxy. Because if you're the only one who's ever seen it in church history, I can be certain that it's closer to heresy, heterodoxy, than it is to orthodoxy. So when you have a theological way of looking at things that is not consistent to the commitment of church history for the last 2,000 years and many, many hundreds of years prior to that, the way that the Jewish authors and the, and the, and the interpreters understood scripture, then most likely you are not aligning yourself with that which is the word of truth, but you are swerving from the truth. Now, this word here is fascinating. It kind of goes with that other word, correctly handling or rightly handling. Because that's talking about a straight way, getting rid of all of the obstacles for you to be able to see uh, the truth of God's word, the gospel in the word. But this word here, swerving, is actually an archery image. It's an archery metaphor where it says that you have a bow and, and you are pointing the bow and shooting the arrow to a different mark or to a different target. And you're missing you're missing the mark or you're missing the target. And what does that do? It has catastrophic consequences. Catastrophic. This is not minor. Look what Paul says. This will mean that there's a whole lot of ungodliness and there will be also sorts of factions and quarrels and, and, and dissension. 
And look what he says here in verse, um, verse 14. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. This is the word where we get the English word, catastrophic. Swerving from the truth is catastrophic for your people. So then what was primarily the false teaching? The worldly thinking that had entered into this particular church in Ephesus and also the church in Crete. That's the provenance or the location for the the book written to Titus. So what is this, what we will call this heresy or the false teaching? Now the challenge with this is, is that Paul doesn't give us enough direct uh, uh, references to what the false teaching is, right? In some places, you see that very clearly in Galatians or in Colossians, but, but here it's hard to tell. Although my passage is the one explicit place where it tells us something about what their false teaching was. Okay, so if other uh, speakers have not talked about it, I guess they were just kind of waiting for me to, uh, to present it. Now, there have been all sorts of uh, speculation, but I'm pretty certain that this false teaching was primarily Jewish. It was primarily sectarian. It was primarily anti-Gentile. Now, this is not to say there weren't dualistic elements for those who place an emphasis on Gnosticism and all that. There might have been some form of proto-Gnosticism, or certainly there is dualism here. And I don't have time to talk about it, but the point here is that they downplay the significance of Christ they had moved beyond Christ, and they, were, they had lost all hope for the return of Christ. Which means their primary uh, false teaching in their this so-called Ephesian heresy was that they had an over-realized view of the already. So the Bible teaches us, when we think about God's work in redemptive history, that, it, that the life, resurrection has already come in the person of Jesus, but not yet consummated. We know that we already have life. We have already been justified, but we are not yet fully glorified. We know that we have been justified, but we are living in this process of progressive sanctification. So what this false teaching was saying was, yep, the resurrection, here is not talking about the first spiritual resurrection when you're converted and you receive eternal life. It's talking about the bodily resurrection at the very end. Oh yeah, all of that? Oh, that's already all here. So all that stuff in the future? No, it's already here. It is an over-realized view of the already. It is saying that we have it all, then we should experience all that which is spiritual. There was an over-spiritualized view, and that is why I think that a lot of these false teachers here and in Corinth and other books, they were spirit enthusiasts. They had an aberrant Jewish false teaching about this. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that God the Holy Spirit cannot move individuals and move his church and do, to do amazing, spectacular things. Of course not. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of God. We believe that God is supernatural, and he absolutely does miraculous things all the time. But what these false teachers were saying was they were abandoning all of the promises and the hopes for the future, and they, had, they were overly triumphalistic. They were overly spiritual, 
they were minimizing and demonizing all of the promises about the future. Carl Henry gave us a very useful uh, way of looking at this. He said, when we talk about the incarnation, about his coming, and then we talk about the, the second return or the advent or the parousia, you need, to, you need to understand the already and not yet aspect of the Christian experience this way. We're supposed to have sober optimism. Sober optimism. That we are sober and not naive. We are not drunk on the counterfeit hopes of the world or the Jewish misunderstanding of missing the mark and swerving from the truth and overemphasizing the alreadiness of the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, we are also optimistic and not cynical because we believe that the hope in the gospel is a real hope. And so if we have an over-realized view of the alreadiness of our experience in the kingdom, then we're going to be overly triumphalistic. We're going to be naively optimistic. And we're going to think whatever, we pro whatever programs that we set in place will be the final solution. And you know what's going to happen? We are going to have an under-realized view, an inadequate view of sin. All that stuff, no, we've pretty much conquered all of that. But there's tension, even in our own experience. There's tension that I'm converted, I'm justified. That I have been accepted. There's no shame. But at the same time, I struggle with my own idols and my own hopes and, and, and my own heart, sin, human condition. And so to emphasize this to the people, what we're doing is we're feeding them what they might naturally want to do in escaping an escapist theology, or, or to retreat from the world. And yes, I have all this trouble and all this struggle in the world, but as long as I come to some sort of a worshipful experience, as long as I'm in some sort of a setting where there is a, an overwhelming sense of subjectivism, then I'm going to be able to ascend to a different spiritual plane. And I guess for a younger generation, that this is a reaction to the enlightenment thinking that reason and rational processing is the highest form of knowing. It's a desire to, to go beyond knowing. That's dangerous. A desire to go beyond knowing. Yes, we don't know all the things of God, but God has given us enough information and revelation in his word and also through his son and through history that we ought not to lead out our lives, as Jonathan Haidt says, we ought not to lead with intuition before reasoning. We can't lead our lives through intuition and then provide some sort of logical reasoning that's gonna support whatever intuitional subjective experience that we want to have that will fit into our world view. Michael spoke yesterday, but some of you are familiar with his book, Ordinary. It's a really ordinary book, but a very helpful book. There's nothing flashy about ordinary, and that's exactly his point. He says things like, you know, we, we are attracted to life-changing, radical, revolutionary, epic, extreme, next big thing, ex explosive experiences. We are caught up in superlatives. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> Italicize 
and Larry Stefan Bullface. But if you live out your lives that way, then all of these so-called superlatives, these extraordinary things, are very ordinary. So it's self-negating. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said that God does extraordinary things through ordinary means. This is why when Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says we need to walk by faith and not by sight. I find that very helpful. Because the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 1, that faith is the what? assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the evidence of things not yet seen. And we're not supposed to walk. We're not supposed to live by sight, but we're supposed to walk by faith. And walking is very ordinary, unless you actually think about walking. Once you start thinking about walking, you don't know how to walk. It's like, uh, do, I, do, I, do I go this way or do I go... This would be weird, right, for us to walk like that, right? But when you think about it, you don't know because you never think. It's just, it's just kind of, it's organic, but it's ordinary. It is rhythmic. It is non-dramatic. It is consistent. It is repetitive. It is constant. And what I appreciate about the life of Enoch, we don't know much about him. It only says he walked with God. So on his tombstone, it simply says, Enoch walked with God, period. And there's nothing flashy about that. And so it, that was so important that the writer of Hebrews put him on the roll call of those who demonstrated faith throughout the years, where it says Enoch walked with God. He was in the presence of God. He enjoyed having fellowship with God. He was involved in the ordinary, normal things that we all do, that anyone can walk, and he did this. He wasn't on a roller coaster. He didn't do extraordinary things, although because of his ordinary life of walking with God, he had an extraordinary life. And that's why I appreciate a life that is not noticed. An un Notice life is pretty remarkable. I know that for us who are very aspirational, that we want our lives to be noticed. But Enoch, he lived an unnoticed life. And the reason why it was so beautiful and why it should be encouraging to us for us to live unnoticed lives, for us not to be drawn to teaching that will tell us that, that everything needs to be sensational and over-spiritualized, that there is an already uh, over-realized view of the already, that everything that we want to experience that we can experience already is because we have been noticed. We've already been approved. We no longer have any shame. We have been noticed. We have been approved. We have been accepted by God. And therefore, that should encourage us to be able to do that. And my final thought here before I get to my final point is this. That we need to recognize the beauties and, uh, and the attributes of Scripture. Kevin has written a, a little book on, on, on the Bible, and it's very helpful. He gives us this, this acronym called, he names it SCAN, which emphasizes the attributes of Scripture. That will be sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. I don't think that any of us sitting here 
that we are in danger of rejecting the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture. We are not in danger of saying that this is not God's word. We are not in danger, at least those of you who are at a conference like this, that, that we don't simply have a high view of Scripture. We don't simply have a view that says I, that I'm committed to the trustworthiness of Scripture. Others say that too. No, we say this is God's word. The Bible, the Holy Scriptures, this is God's word, infallible and without error. However, for those of us who have made that kind of commitment, the danger for us is that we don't fully believe the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the greater danger for us. That the Scriptures contain everything that we need for our life and ministry and for godly living. And we sense as though we need other voices, other revelation, other experiences in order for us to draw close to God. That is why we say, well, it doesn't matter whether I'm learning within the context of the local church. It doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm reading it from revelation. Of course, I believe that that's God's word, but I need to hear a voice from God. I need to hear a voice from Jesus. I need to have an encounter with Jesus. And therefore, we minimize the sufficiency of Scripture. Then an unashamed workman not only receives the word of truth and rejects worldly thinking that has shaped the way we look at our experience, but thirdly, it restores the wanderer. Look with me here in verses 24 and following. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, it seems as though what Paul is saying, he's saying one thing and he's saying something else, and they seem to kind of be in contradistinction to one another. So which is it, Paul? Do we teach, provide instruction, correct, discipline, speak the truth, give them the knowledge of truth, or are we supposed to be patient and to be gentle and to be kind and to be loving? Which is it? They seem to be unreconcilable themes. Right? Just tell me, do you want me to stand on the truth or do you want me to love? And Paul is saying, well, both. I remember many years ago, I, I heard a um, really interesting and funny uh, story. Uh, she was a uh, campus uh, a minister, and uh, she had this one uh, young woman who was, I believe, a sophomore in college. She came to her and said, um, hey, can I get some counsel from you because I'm in a relationship, and it's not a healthy relationship, and I don't know what to do. And, um, and uh, she said, well, describe for me what the relationship is like, and and she counseled her by saying, yeah, I guess you can just kind of speak the truth to lay it all out, or you can speak the truth in love. And, uh, and the young student went out to say, yeah, you know, um, the problem, he, you know, she could go to her boyfriend and say, the problem in this uh, relationship is that you are narcissistic, you're self-congratulatory, you're always self-interested, you're not concerned about my needs, you're only concerned about your own needs. 
parenthetical note. When was the last time that you spoke to somebody like that? Right? Just kind of laid it out. Said, honey, uh, we, we, can we have a talk? You know, it won't take very long. Well, <laughs> if you're thinking that, then you haven't been married long enough, right? Because that short 10-minute explanation is going to end up being a week. But so, so you go there and say, hey, honey, the problem in our relationship is your self-consumed and self-absorbed and hey, but, but I'm, I'm speaking the truth. It's for your good. It's good for our marriage. And what happens? The person is going to respond being defensive, blame, sh- blame shifting and, and saying, well, how could you say that? You don't, care. you don't think about me. The reason why I'm being this way is because you respond this way to me, right? So you can go to your boyfriend and do that. Just simply speak the truth. Or you can go to your boyfriend and speak the truth in love. You can go to him and say that uh, the problem in our relationship is that we're both in love with the same person. (laughs) I'm in love with you, and you definitely are in love with you. You never get inspired by grammar, even though grammar is right and correct. You get inspired by poetry. And what we find here in what Paul is describing is the graceful picture of the gospel at work. We sing the hymn, is God mighty or is he meek? Is God holy or is he humble? Is God majestic or is he near. Is God full of greatness or is he good? And the Bible over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament is trying to show you that that tension finds its resolution in the climax of redemption. That's why the phrase in the Hebrew that says steadfast love and faithfulness, literally that word faithfulness is translated as truthfulness. So steadfast love and truthfulness. The Greek translation of that phrase that goes all throughout the Old Testament is grace and truth. Does that sound familiar? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. It says here in, in verse uh, 24, and the Lord's servant, it's referring to the, the Isianic suffering servant of the Lord, where it says, a bruised reed he will not break in chapter 42, verse 3. A bruised reed, this suffering servant, a bruised reed he will not break. And the faintly burning wick he will not quench. And of course we know this. Yes, yes, this is what's so beautiful about this suffering servant, the the Lord servant who comes and he's gracious, he's merciful, he is kind, he is gentle, and he is loving, and he is patient. But we tend to forget the very next verse. That's not part of our memorization, right? Oftentimes. And it goes on to say, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Oh man, what is required of you? What is good? That you do justice, love kindness, same word, steadfast love, loving kindness, grace, and walk humbly with your God. 
That tension is always found in Scripture. And the reason why it's found in Scripture is because Jesus Christ himself is the culmination and the fulfillment and the solution where he brings the so-called unreconcilable tension of steadfast love and truthfulness, of instruction and correction and, and teaching, along with kindness and patience and love. He embodies it in himself. It is paradoxical, but not contradictory. It is ironic, but not oxymoronic. It is an approach to life and ministry that ultimately brings us to a place where we know that because of what that individual has done, that we will be able to find a meaning for ourselves. That he himself is the perfect, unashamed workman. That he is the one who is the honorable vessel and instrument. And he is the one who is the good servant of the Lord. Who speaks to us, who received the word perfectly, rejected the world completely, and restored the wanderer wholly in himself. And therefore, that we can have the courage and the encouragement as the exhortation is coming to know that if we land on that, if we build whatever we're doing through our life and ministry on that, on that foundation and not swerving from the truth, then guess what? Even a wanderer can be restored. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.